What's up, world? I'm Matt Newberg from Hungary, and this is The Feed. Each episode, we'll dive into conversations with the industry insiders who are leveraging technology to shape the way we eat. On today's episode of The Feed, I sat down with Dmitry Shevalenko, former head of Uber's mobility partnerships and founder of Tortoise, a startup that built slow-moving robotic vending machines for stadiums, parking lots, and other public spaces. In this episode, Dmitry talks about lessons learned from his startup, the current landscape of autonomous delivery bots, and the challenges for hardware startups to become commercially viable businesses. This podcast is brought to you by Hungry, a media and research platform dedicated to the intersection of food and technology. For more information, please visit Hungry.tv, that's Hungry with no U, and click subscribe to join the weekly newsletter. All right, Dimitri, it's awesome to have you here. Um, thank you so much for taking the time. I'd love for you to talk about your product and business background at companies like Facebook, LinkedIn, and Uber, and kind of how you formed Tortoise about four years ago. Yeah, so, so I'll give the, the whirlwind uh, career history. Started my career at Facebook back when it was 80 million users and was there for, for four years as it scaled up to 800 million users. And, uh, you know, I, I was a nobody at Facebook, but uh, it, it's very useful to get an early exposure to hypergrowth and you kind of, you know, it, it, you develop a taste for it and then so some pattern recognition. Uh, so that was, uh, you know, it, it was a great experience. Uh, also one where like being non-technical at a company that prizes, you know, technical talent, uh, it put a healthy chip on your shoulder of like, okay, n- next time I'm, I'm at something that's growing, I, I want to be in the room where it happens. Uh, and so that, that was a healthy motivator of, of the Facebook experience as well. It was clear at Facebook that, that when I left that mobile was going to be, you know, a, a big new category of, uh, of where technology was going. And so joined Pulse News, which was one of the first uh, mobile news aggregators uh, that, that launched right, right when the iPad first came out uh, and was with them, led monetization as they were acquired by LinkedIn. And I was a product manager at LinkedIn. Uh, kind of got got uh, the the technical blessing of of being a a, a product manager, so so credibility in, in Silicon Valley, uh, and it, and then and it saw that a lot of the smartest folks uh, from Facebook were all going to to this new company called Uber, and joined Uber as a director of business development, focused on uh, several things there. One was the Uber API ecosystem, so so letting other people integrate Uber into their app or experience, like the classic examples, Google Maps, letting you order order an Uber ride, and then worked on driver business development and partnerships. Uh, and then with the other way of thinking about, you know, what are the, what are other transportation products uh, that should be inside the Uber app? Uh, it led the company's expansion into multimodal transportation. So the, the jump bikes and scooters, public transit integration to the Uber app, car rental, uh, and so it's so kind of the, these early efforts of, of turning Uber into a transportation super app, uh, which, which in, in some ways become even, even more of a priority as, uh, in, in, in the last few years for Uber. And through that, got a lot of exposure to the micromobility space uh, and, and kind of these new modes of transportation and, uh, and saw an interesting opportunity to be uh, a full-time advisor after I left Uber and worked with seven different startups ranging from autonomous helicopters to, to shared scooters to mobile parking aggregators. And uh, that was a lot of fun because just working with CEOs across many different aspects of mobility and uh, got, got the itch myself to, to, to start something and, and that founded Tortoise. And uh, we just r- wrapped the, the Tortoise journey at the end of last year. But yeah, I'll, I'll pause there. I can obviously go into more detail on Tortoise, but that, that was kind of the, the, the history of, of Dimitri up, up until the Tortoise founding. Amazing, yeah. Um, I I definitely remember Jump very well, and um, and I do remember the the e scooter craze around Bird, and and I still see them all over the streets of LA all the time, and try not to hit anybody in my car. Um, how would you would you define this broader category of micro mobility to span? like serve robots, what you were doing at Tortoise, which we'll get into momentarily. How would you draw a circle around the space of quote-unquote micromobility? Yeah, I mean, to me, micromobility is, is stuff that goes can go on the sidewalk and the, the bike lane, you know, whether it be that's where it rides or that's where it parks. 
Um, so it's, it's, it's vehicles that are, are for the most part electric and are kind of, you know, taking advantage of, of everything that happened in the supply chain around small electric batteries. And then, you know, effectively not using the car lane, uh, and, and kind of taking advantage of, of, you know, if you think about one of the most interesting urban land use developments is while there are nowhere near as many bike lanes as there should be, you know, there's been, you know, millions of miles of bike lanes created and and that's kind of a, a new use of real estate and uh and it creates a lot of opportunity and you know we're, we're also building more sidewalks and so i think it's it's the the class of vehicles that that can kind of take advantage of of those new spaces um and you know kind of they generally come with with kind of this natural electrification push which i think is is important as we think about you know sustainable transportation uh, it's not just having everybody drive Teslas, but but having smaller form factors where we can fit more of that into a city uh, it becomes also very important. Fascinating. So I'd love for you to just give us the, let's talk about Tortoise. What was the original thesis that you kind of were, were testing? And then maybe talk about how you pivoted to this idea of a smart store, smart autonomous store. Yeah, so, so, so you know, the founding principles of Tortoise were, um, low speed comes before high speed. You know, that, that one was also g- gave us our name. Uh, so the, w- w- when it comes to, to automation, uh, the, the second was light mass comes before heavy mass. And that kind of speaks to, you know, the, the kind of taking advantage of, of these micro mobility lanes. Uh, and, and the third was remote controlled comes before autonomous. Mm-hmm. And, and so those were our three founding principles and actually are, are, I don't think we've talked about this before, Matt, but our very first use case was actually not in uh, delivery logistics. It was in the in the shared scooter space. Uh, so we uh, developed technology so that when somebody poorly parks a scooter, we could have one of our remote teleoperators based in Mexico City repark a scooter that, that that's in Mountain View uh, using cameras that, that are added to the scooter. Uh, and so you know, we, we kind of officially started working on Tortoise and, and kind of developing it uh, late Q3, early Q4 of 2019. Uh, and then, you know, l- less than five months into our uh, corporate history, COVID hit and shared scooter usage, uh, you know, drops to zero. It was, it was funny. We were actually supposed to launch our first pilot market in Peachtree Corners, Georgia. And uh, the day before I was supposed to get on the airplane was when... Uh, all U.S. flights were grounded for COVID, and basically that was it was when we started entering shutdown mode in in, in March of 2020. And so that was uh, that 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 was a, a shock to the system, and and obviously all the scooter operators, you know, pulled their fleets. And we decided to, you know, we, we could have shut down at that point, but you know, our our kind of insight was if the transportation of of people is frozen. Uh, the transportation of goods becomes even more important, and we'd always thought that that delivery and logistics would would be where we, you know, we, we were trying to build a platform technology, and we always thought that would be a good second or third vertical after uh, shared micromobility. But but with kind of the needs, the need around delivering things to people last mile uh, skyrocketing with COVID, we we made a pivot towards building our own remote controlled delivery robot focused on home grocery delivery. Uh, and and so we we built a form factor that we thought was not uh, available in the market, which is something larger and more modular uh, that could handle you know typical e-commerce uh, order for home grocery, which is a hundred pounds of stuff. You, you can't really do that with with kind of the Starship or or Serve form factor that was already in market. And and kind of the the other you know kind of going back to that third principle of, of remote control before autonomous. We saw an urgency in the market, you know, and, and if you don't try to solve for autonomy, you do 100% teleops, can you scale and, and provide value quicker? And so that was uh, that, that was kind of the strategy we decided on. We were able to get some big customers on board pretty quickly, Safeway, Albertsons, uh, ShopRite, Meyer, and, uh, and they were using us for, you know, last mile delivery pilots. And, uh, you know, now, now that we're on the other end of this, you know, I can kind of be transparent, like, we were great at getting those customers, but we didn't deliver a fantastic experience. Even when uh, a solution is 100% teleoperated, the the reality of of sidewalks and variants and edge cases that pop up around connectivity led to you know pretty 
dismal completion rates uh, relative to where they need to be to be competitive with with kind of a you know, gig economy like a DoorDash drive solution. And so, you know, the, the thesis that uh, 100% teleops means you have a, uh, a and again, teleops is somebody can be sitting anywhere in the world who sees out of the cameras that are on the robot and using a joystick uh, is, is remotely driving it at a low speed. And so the, the, the idea that by, you know, not focusing on autonomy and just focusing on teleops, you know, you have a viable solution. Yeah, that didn't prove to be the case. And, and so kind of pivot number two for us was being honest with ourselves. Like we, we can keep doing these pilots and so there was demand for them, but we weren't making quick enough progress on, on reliability. And a really interesting behavior that we saw was when our robots were parked in front of grocery stores waiting for their next delivery, they would generate tremendous engagement. Like people would walk up to them, start talking to the robots, you know, want to touch them, feel them, you know, they, they were taller than, uh, you know, your, your typical delivery robot kind of went right up to, to arm height for most people. And, uh, and, you know, I mean, that's one of the reasons why the grocery stores love them as it was like, you know, a cool technology showcase, even if it wasn't doing much value on the delivery front, it, it was generating excitement. And we started surveying people, asking them, hey, like, you know, you were talking to this robot, it wasn't really talking to you, like, what would you think was going to happen? <laughs> and uh, a you know, surprisingly large number of people all said the same thing, which was, well, we, we thought we could buy something from the robot. Mm. Uh, and, and that was kind of the, the proverbial light bulb moment for us that uh, may, maybe we can, we can do better selling stuff and, instead of delivering it. And um, again, because we had this modular form factor where you can load on different container types uh, on, onto our, our robot platform, and, and the containers themselves are pretty generic, we, we were able to pretty quickly uh, embed a tap-to-pay NFC reader in each of the two uh, container lids. So each robot had two containers, each, each has a lid. And so the, the, the experience we created is, you know, we called it the world's first mobile vending robot, where the consumer could walk up to the robot, see a product that's being sold inside a specific container, see, see the price, of, uh, of, of that product and without having to install an app, without having to fuss with a QR code, just tap to pay on the container lid, uh, the payment goes through, container lid unlocks, uh, you, you lift up the lid and take out one of the items and go. Uh, and, and so we, we started, uh, you know, we, we did a, a full shift towards this model in uh, early 2022. We saw really interesting traction, you know, basically wherever you have large crowds uh, so we got it deployed in the Mall of America, uh, NBA games, NHL, MLB, with Comic Con. Uh, so we had kind of all all the four biggest U.S. Uh, international venue operators signed on with 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 MSAs, and so we were seeing really interesting traction. Uh, but these were all small deployments, uh, and so uh, you know the the kind of tragic uh, timing for Tortoise is. Uh, you know, right, right as we, we were, were kind of getting our speed going with, with, with the second pivot, you know, we, we had the downturn that, that hit in uh, 2022 and we weren't in a position uh, of being able to tell a revenue story. We had kind of, again, interesting pilots and, and interesting MSAs, but it was not, uh, we, we didn't have the ingredients to say like, yeah, this is, this is a real business yet. And so with, with kind of the fundraising drying up across the board, especially for anything that, that has the the dreaded hardware uh, label. We uh, we weren't able to see it through. Um. So, what sort of products were you selling on these? Um. You know, when you pivoted to the smart store, it was, how many? How much of it was a lended itself well to a food use case? If if any of those customers wanted that, um. And what was the business model? Yeah. So the uh, it, it generally was food. Um. And and you know, I mean, not things that were particularly temperature sensitive. So yeah, the, the the categories that stood out was you know beverages, uh, like Gatorades, uh, water bottles, and things that could stack nicely inside of a container. And then chips. The kind of all-time best performing category was cookies. Uh, so cookies. Yeah, at some point we were almost thinking about go, going a vertically integrated route and just becoming a cookie vendor because that was uh, that that was always yeah. I think the combination of the robot and and the you know, it's really these instant gratification categories. And, you know, the, the thing with our experience is 
we're constrained to selling two SKUs at a time because you have two containers and, and to kind of preserve this frictionless, no QR code, no app experience, uh, you can't sell multiple SKUs in one container. And, and so uh, it's kind of usually a contrast of a beverage and, and something you can eat. And, you know, also trying to contrast, you know, a five to $8 price point and a, you know, 15 to, to $30 price point so that you, you kind of, you know, and you'll always obviously sell more of the, of the lower cost price point. Um, you know, chips was another category. Again, it, it had to be things that are nicely bagged, bottled or boxed. It had to be things that, that hold relatively well because while, while the containers are insulated, they didn't have refrigeration. And you could, yeah, we, we kind of figured out a good way to put ice packs in there and, and keep things cold, but keeping things warm uh, would, would have been more of a challenge. And uh, we, our, our business model was uh, was a take rate model. So we would keep 10% of sales. Uh, and um, that was part of why we were, I think, effective in, in getting a lot of customers signed on quickly. Because uh, there was no upfront investment, you know, there's no we we weren't, you know, there there's if you're not using it enough, we would also charge, you know, five hundred dollars a month, uh, in in basically as as a rental fee for the robot. Uh, but if you're putting it out every day, you know, you're just paying us ten percent of of the proceeds. And long term, that might be the right business model for a solution like this. But you know, when when we kind of do our hindsight twenty twenty, uh, if we could do it over again. We probably would have approached this as a sponsorship business model, where so much of the value we're creating is is awareness for the product that's being sold in the container because it's it's being wrapped exclusively with 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 that marketing. And uh, you know, for every one person that transacts and buys something, there's fifty that saw it, uh, and and we weren't capturing that value uh, ourselves, and and weren't necessarily quantifying that for. Um, the, the 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 CPGs, uh, we we did deployment with with Walmart, and we didn't engage the CPG. Uh, you know, it was like a Jack Links uh, was was one of the items they were selling, and when the Jack Links folks saw it, they like they loved it, and they're like, how can we get this to to every Walmart? And you know, it, it was clear that there was you know, and again, that that was kind of towards the tail end of of when we were running out of runway, but uh, but if we had kind of monetized it and and kind of charged higher premiums, say like $50,000 sponsorship, you know, to have, you know, your, your CPG product robot in the field for three months, uh, we could have put bigger numbers on the board than kind of 10% of, you know, a $5 transaction. And then we're really at the, at the mercy of the retail partner, whoever, whoever owns the real estate, putting it in the right location, you know, having there be enough foot traffic there, uh, to, to generate those sales. Very interesting. Yeah. It's like a roving billboard so to speak. Yeah. And there's, I mean, I, I forget the name of the company, but there's like at large conferences, there's a company who basically just drives around a truck with a giant digital billboard and you can pay. They just drive in circles around the conference. And if like, you don't want to, you know, pay for a booth at a conference, you basically pay for that truck to, to drive around. And uh, yeah, I mean, we're, we're doing it in you know, a, a more n- natural way. But, uh, but yeah, I think there's something it actually goes back to one of the insights from the shared scooter space. You know, it's a pretty shitty business, uh, as we kind of see with with Bird stock price. Um, you know, I mean, I think their current valuation is fifty million dollars, and you know, they <laughs> raised you know like something like five hundred million dollars in capital, uh, and were valued at two billion at the, at their peak. Uh, but but the one really good thing about the the shared business models uh, for microbility vehicles is you have a customer acquisition cost of zero because the product literally advertises itself when it's parked on the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see it, you know, you walk up, you you install the app, uh, and and you get going right. And that that's different even than the rideshare where Uber was you know paying you know twenty twenty five dollars either either for ad campaigns or. Uh, credits to to get people to to get started. So I want to like zoom in a little bit more into like the the math problem here, and I think there's always this idea that you know one of the biggest costs, obviously, in food delivery or just you know last mile logist- logistics in general is obviously labor, and so we can spend you know invest hundreds of millions of dollars or billions into these companies. They're going to try to lower that cost, right? 
and or we can you know do something like you were doing where you were just essentially outsourcing the labor to you know the labor arbitrage so to speak right and i think when we're looking at the back of the house of like kitchen automation or even looking at companies that are doing like what Tortoise was doing or what Neuro is doing, and we'll talk about some of those other companies, but on the last mile delivery side, it's always this question of like CapEx versus OpEx, right? It's like, when is, you know, I can invest, you know, tens of thousands of dollars on robots that for a one time fee, and maybe they're, they're not there yet, right? They can't be fully autonomous, but at some point they could be fully autonomous, but and I think about like what's the payback on that versus paying someone in Mexico in a call center to remote control it, right? Or, or even just hiring an Instacart driver and paying them a fair wage. And what are, what are the you know assumptions on the basket size and the margins, and who's going to pay for that premium and that convenience to make it work? So I guess my question for you is like, is this idea of last mile being profitable through automation on the on the delivery side a pipe dream? And if so, you know what needs to be true to make that work uh, using these kinds of tools uh, in this space? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the the simple answer is the automated solution actually needs to work as well as the non-automated solution. And um, we're, we're very far, I mean, like it, it's, it's kind of, it seems like it's always on the horizon, but we're never there. And, and again, we, we thought we could get to that with, with a teleop-centric approach. Um, you know, Starship's been at this for like six, seven years, and they haven't figured out, you know, how to do what they're doing outside of college campuses. And then you obviously have kind of the, the you know, self-driving, uh, on on kind of car lanes, uh, which is a much even harder technical challenge, and uh, it doesn't seem like we're, we're making you know, material progress there. I mean, Neuro, you know, they've announced great customers, and it's you know, it's uh, th those are hard deals to kind of negotiate. But you don't see Neuro vehicles operating, you know, pretty much anywhere, uh, and it's it's because it's a really hard problem. So I, I think the it, it's not that the math doesn't add up. At some point in the future, when the automation is actually there and, and reliable and and working the way we all want it to, it's just it's very much a. Yeah, I, I think one of my general views is the application space for for machine learning and robotics needs to be narrow. Uh, that's where this stuff and and where you have a high tolerance for failure, and yeah, you know, the faster you're going and the larger your vehicle the the kind of the tolerance for error just just approaches zero very quickly and so i think that's kind of you know that's where there's appeal of sidewalk robots is you know something that going at a lower speed and weighs less even in, in your absolute worst case scenario much harder to kill somebody than you know with a car going 25 miles an hour but the problem hasn't been solved at scale you know in in, in either use case and i don't think you, you um it, it requires yeah, potentially requires fundamental breakthroughs that you can't put a timeline around. So it's not just a question of like, oh, if, if we get another million miles of training data, you know, we're there. Um, I mean, it, it, it's kind of, there. The, I think that I'm butchering this phrase, but there, there's something to the effect of like, the last 1% is, you know, 99% of the work. And I think we're, we're kind of, we've been in that. It, it's very easy to show demos that, that get, you know, look like they're 95% reliable, but to, to actually scale any of these technologies, you need three nines reliability, and uh, and we're, we're not close to that. Yeah, when you talk about being like high, highly error tolerant, uh, I think about this quote that's on a Serve Robotics uh, investor page where they're talking about, why deliver two pound burritos and two ton cars, right? And it's like, we can deliver these things and these little tiny things and you can kick them over and it's not going to do too much harm. I think that, you know, I don't know how many people listening to this are familiar with the, the landscape of these players that some of them we've mentioned, some of them not yet, like Kiwi, like Surf, like Neuro. I just give us like a high level of, of, of these companies that are in this space trying to automate the last mile and then maybe talk about what are, what, we all saw them pop up kind of in the last couple of years. What was the kind of fundamental enabling technologies you, you think created this trend? 
Yeah, so, so I'll start with the last part. I mean, this is part of our thesis at Tortoise was, you know, say around, you know, 2017, 2018, 2019, you, you had an inflection point where, you know, electric batteries that can power a, you know, 100-pound or under vehicle, um, you know, going at, at these kind of, you know, sub eight mile per hour speeds, they got pretty cheap, you know, and, and very reliable. So say that 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 kind of became commoditized. And then, you know, the, the base components in an Android smartphone, you know, with, with 4G connectivity and, you know, re- really you know, impressive processing power, that became commoditized at, at, at a kind of a sub hundred dollar price point. And, and then kind of the, the third trifecta is you, you have, you know, around that time, maybe a, a year or two before it, you pretty much have 4G connectivity everywhere in the world where you have a need for, for labor cost reduction. And, and so I think that those kind of, you know, the, the, the batteries being cheap and ubiquitous, the electronic components to power the connectivity, and then having kind of the, the, the 4G umbrella everywhere uh, I think that's, you know, it was essential for, for many different in- industries, including shared scooters, but I think particularly in delivery robots, uh, that, 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 uh, that, that, that was important. I think, you know, I'll start with Neuro because they're the least like the others because they're, you know, Neuro is more similar to a cruise or a Waymo. Uh, you know, they're, they're operating in, on the road uh, and they need to, you know, they're effectively building a car, except their car will never have passengers in it. And so the, the neuro theory of the case is if you're building a car that never has to carry people, but still goes on, on roads uh, where, where there are cars with people, you're, you're going to get to market faster than a cruiser Waymo because you can do things like if, if your vehicle's in a crash, you can have it uh, fold in on itself and you know, hurt the cargo, but then not hurt the other car. And so, so I think that's why Neuro has invested heavily in building their own vehicles, custom designed for, for transporting cargo with, with, with never having a human inside. And, and so I think, you know, that, that's kind of the Neuro play. And, and, you know, to their credit, Neuro has been effective at fundraising, you know, more so than any other kind of delivery robotics player, right? I mean, they, they've raised hundreds of millions and I'm, I'm sure there's a model where they can have runway for, for the next eight to 10 years with no problem. And uh, in, in some ways, that that's kind of an interesting thing about there's a barbell strategy here. You know, you either go very big and kind of develop on a 10-year time horizon and have to raise capital to, to let yourself do so, or you try to, you know, bring to market a solution that, that is immediately kind of accessible. Um, that's what we were trying to do at Tortoise, and we weren't successful in that. We were kind of in the middle of the barbell, which is, which is the no man's land, where it, it wasn't this huge vision like a Neuro or Cruise or Waymo has, you know, by, by focusing on teleops, but it also wasn't something like a SaaS kind of enterprise software play where, where you can, you know, scale up immediately w- within, you know, 18 months of launch. And, and so I think that, that that's kind of the no man's land uh, that, that you want to avoid. So you got Neuro on one end of it. And um, yeah, I think there, I mean, it's tough to build a car that it's tough to build an autonomous car and they've got all the same challenges that, that Cruise and Waymo has. And, you know, it's, it's unclear that the constraints of their use case actually let you scale faster than, than the, in, in robo-taxi land, right? And I think that's the big open question on, on their strategy. And then you, you've got Starship, which is really the, the first to the space that they were, you know, developed uh, in Europe. Uh, it was a former Skype founders, and uh, you know they they've certainly done the most you know miles and deliveries, and they really focus on college campuses. But something about their story also doesn't add up in that like if they're doing so well, they, they kind of they haven't been able to raise from kind of you know premier investors, and it's like kind of some random European development bank is was was their last source of cash, and they've really focused on the college campus environment and haven't been able to kind of grow out from that. You know, part of what I understand about their business model, which is smart, is they actually charge the college campus a flat fee. Uh, so it's like, hey, if you want Starship robots on your campus, you pay us, you know, five hundred thousand dollars a year. 
and and so that way they're a lot less sensitive to the revenue per delivery mm. uh, that than a player that that's trying to kind of you know have an equivalent to to DoorDash drive pricing. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's you know I presume that's why they've stuck to college campuses is you know and and from the point of view of a college campus like it's almost like a marketing benefit, right? You're trying to attract students. You want to say, hey, we have this futuristic campus. Look at our robots, and it's like, okay, we'll we'll kind of you know, compared to all the other marketing initiatives we have, you know, 500,000 to, you know, help with, with this, this kind of food delivery story isn't that expensive. Uh, so I think that's a nice niche. And, um, yeah, I think Kiwi Bot has really focused on a very similar story They're, they're as far as I understand, you know, at, at scale only on college campuses and, um, yep, they, they kind of came to market a few years after Starship, but, but kind of similar form factor. And then. You've got uh, the serve folks, which were uh, first developed uh, inside of Postmates, uh, and then after Postmates acquired Uber, spun spun out, and they they focus, you know, really on on the autonomy piece and kind of building the most sophisticated technology, and and I think that's uh, yeah that that's kind of been the, their differentiator and and kind of re- really trying to get at autonomy and not just do deliveries but rely heavily on on teleoperators. Yeah, they've been really successful kind of getting, you know, folks like 7-Eleven, Uber to be investors. And so they have kind of a a nice interplay of of their kind of capital stack is also their customer stack. And and so I think that that's kind of serving serve well. But uh but yeah, it's it's a bear market for for anybody in the hardware robotics space. I'm sure we're gonna talk about the crowdfunding uh, <laughs> campaign, but it, it's you know, you don't do something like that. If there's other simpler options, kind of easily, at, and you know, at, at, at your availability. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned a lot of these partnerships, right? Like Seven Eleven and Serve, and Neuro had something with Domino's, and you see these headlines time and time again. We just saw one this week for a company called Conjure, formerly known as RoboMart, which is not autom- automated, but Similar idea, kind of to Tortoise, but using you know the city streets and bringing stores to people with with Mars or Unilever, and you read about these partnerships, and then you just don't hear anything else. They they just kind of like dissipate into the media sphere, and then they no one talks about them again. So like what's and you've gone through this with like the likes of uh, Safeway, right, Albertsons, and some of the bigger grocers that you were mentioning earlier. Like help us think about how these companies are looking at these startups, how seriously they're taking it. Is it an M&A path? Is it uh, just something for press? How serious are these companies about these partnerships and what are they looking to get out of them in the early stages? Yeah, I mean, the the bigger the company, the harder it is for them to do anything, right? So they've got their own bureaucratic stagnation. And so... I think kind of the, the most general kind of insight into them is, is they're just looking for learnings uh, and some good press, you know, like, but but they realize like a lot of the stuff they can't do in-house and, you know, it's not very expensive to them to, to run a small pilot. It makes them look good, you know, and, and it's kind of something that their CEO can mention during uh, a quarterly earnings call as like, hey, like we're not being left behind by kind of, you know, the 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 tech uh space and you know, we're, we're even though we're an incumbent, like we're we're innovating ourselves. But it's you know, there, there's few examples of of kind of large grocers, lar- large restaurants like truly scaling up uh robotics. I mean, I think the most successful category has been kind of micro fulfillment centers. Uh but even that, you know, like look at takeoff uh, technologies, which is a micro fulfillment provider in Albertsons, like I think they announced like they've just done their 15th location. That's been like five years. And I mean, and that's like the best case, right? So it's yeah. like you're, you're five years in as your marquee customer and, and you've kind of have 15 locations. Now that that's, you know, each location is, is very involved. Um, it's just its own little factory, but that's not, I mean, it, this stuff doesn't happen fast, right? And so from the point of view of the startup, it's, you know, I mean, every founder who's listening knows this, like you kind of have to fake it till you make it, right? And so generating good headlines that are vague as to the specifics of what the big guy is actually doing, 
you know, there's still utility in that, right? There's utility in that it helps you land second tier custom. Like, so, you know, you, you announce something with Safeway, you know, and then you have the tier two grocers are like, oh, Safeway is doing this. Like, we should also have a robotic strategy, right? So <laughs> there is, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer that like earned media is, you know, for, for early stage startups can be your most effective marketing channel, right? Uh, definitely more effective than like sponsoring a conference uh, or, or, you know, other things I see startups kind of, you know, sp spend resources on. So, so I think there is a, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is there's a, an interesting combination where a pilot partnership can deliver no substantive kind of experience to either the large company or to the startup, but still be useful to both. And, and it's, I mean, really the, the person that being, is being suckered is the, the reader of that content <laughs> that thinks that like all this stuff is happening when a lot of it is vaporware. Uh, but it, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not, it's not a stupid strategy for, for either side. Uh, but yeah, I, I would certainly be skeptical of what, when you see these announcements. And if, if there's no specific details mentioned, uh, assume that it is the minimal version of whatever could still plausibly be true from the headline uh, is, is the reality. Because if there are substantive details, th those will take it out in the release. I ended up covering the 7-Eleven launch and it ended up taking 40 minutes to get like three things delivered and I paid double the amount of time, uh, double the amount, um, the basket size of what it would cost inside the store, right? When you count for the delivery fee. And they're saying like the value to the customers that they don't have to, they save money on tip. And it was absolutely ridiculous because I ordered it from like a six minute walk from the store and it took 40 minutes for the stupid robot to show up at the store for the guy to pick the, the order, and it just felt like a dystopian hell. And then I talked to the, the guy at the 7-Eleven, and he's like, well, we only get one of these orders from the 7-Eleven, from the serve robot a week or something. And some weeks we don't get any, you know? And I was just like, yeah, this is total BS. And then they go and they do this crowdfunding campaign where you're looking at the you know, the financials and there's like, you know, an ongoing concern for the business, then you're reading it, and they're trying to sell sell to retail investors for a minimum of a thousand dollar investment at a three hundred million dollar cap if you invest today and it's going up to three hundred fifty million dollar cap in the next couple of weeks. So you better invest now. And it's just I don't know, rub me the really the wrong way. And um you look at this company's never it said it never generated a penny in in revenue and that they want to sell ads. They haven't done it yet. And they uh, are burning $1.4 million a month with $4.8 million left in the bank. And, um, you know, that's down from $1.8 million at the height of their burn. And I'm just looking at this and thinking, where does this pencil out? So I guess my question is, uh, <laughs> where are these companies in terms, you know, ad in terms of like their runway? And, you know, what do you make of, of, this crowdfunding campaign, like are all these companies essentially just going to to fold in the next year or two, or are any of them gonna make it? I mean, I, I think it's um in terms of the fold uh dynamic, I think it's broader than just delivery robots, right? I think we're we're just now in a you know, capital constrained environment with with higher interest rates. And uh, you know, anything that isn't like immediately on a path of profitability or has a hype cycle around it, like large language models and generative AI, you have to assume it's, it's yeah, you're going to see a lot of categories kind of, you know, have a lot of companies go under. So I, I, I don't think it's necessarily specific to delivery robots. I think, you know, robots have, I mean, it's interesting that this isn't the first robot crowdfunding campaign. So like Nightscope, uh, which is the security robots. I mean, they've raised, you know, I think $100 million through crowdfunding. Uh, and then Miso that does the Flippy robot, they've raised tens of millions through through crowdfunding. And I think it, you know, there is something, you know, people like, I mean, it was kind of one of our insights with the mobile vending robot, people like robots, right? And it's not, it's not necessarily, you know, when you're doing crowdfunding, it's not like necessarily a rational investment. People are kind of, you know, investing in their passions. And I think there's a, you want to have fans uh, that are owners. And I think there, there's kind of a, a strategy around that. 
Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I, I think again, like I said earlier, like you don't do this stuff. Uh, you, I mean, there's two reasons to do crowdfunding. One is you don't have an alternative. Uh, the other is you have an alternative, but you can raise a similar amount at a higher valuation with, with kind of the, the retail investor crowd, uh, that then with kind of financial investors and that, you know, that there's certainly kind of, that's part of the factor here. But, uh, but yeah, I, it's, it's, um, I mean, crowdfunding, it's, it's good that I'm grateful that we changed the regulatory landscape so that people can participate. Uh, but, but in general, it's, um, there's an adverse selection effect right now with crowdfunding. This isn't even specific to robots. Like the stuff that comes to crowdfunding is usually the stuff that isn't able to get other funding. Um, and so kind of, it's not that retail investors are being let into like the Sequoia deals. They're <laughs> being given access to, you know, the deals that Sequoia is passing on. Two words come to mind and I'm just going to leave it at this. Moral hazard. That's it. That's all I have to say about that. But um, I'd love for you to also talk about another topic of uh, another trend that could potentially make food delivery possible or sorry, profitable in the future, which, which are drones, right? And then you even have things like this underground network called Pipe Dream Labs. So I guess, do you have any thoughts on these pilots with companies like DoorDash and Wing or Walmart and DroneUp? What do you think about those? Are those attainable in the future? I mean, it's, um, those are tough uh, because you've got the noise factor uh, I think that's going to be, you know, that that feels like uh, even if you're fine on safety, you've got noise and kind of, you know, communities kind of complaining, uh, which is one of the reasons, you know, kind of helicopters, uh, that there was like a heyday for, for helicopters being a form of urban transportation. And, you know, there, there's kind of safety issues, but also meaningful noise issues that, that kind of curb that. Uh, and I think that's an issue for drones kind of you know, outside of rural areas. So I think in rural areas, uh, I mean, if you look at kind of where, you know, Zipline came from kind of doing medical deliveries in rural Africa, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, the more space you have to work with in the context of a drone delivery, like the less safety sensitivity there is uh, in kind of kind of accident scenarios. I just, I think if, if we're talking about, you know, for a DoorDash, uh, or an Uber Eats where the bulk of their business is, you know, suburban, urban areas. I'm actually more optimistic about uh, the pipe dream uh, model than, than I am about kind of overhead drone delivery. Um, and, and it just, I also feel drone delivery is going to have the city councils will, will just kind of regulate that one to death because uh, it, it's, it's very easy for, for kind of the noise complaint issue to, to kind of, you know, activate all the NIMBY forces that, that, uh, that, that come out. And, uh, you know, at least with shared scooters and kind of electric bikes, you have kind of the sustainable transportation story that, that kind of, you know, uh, you know, taking cars off the road and it's more directly accessible as, as a, as a justifying narrative. I think with drones that, that becomes tougher. Just real quick. Can we just talk about the pipe dream model? It's, uh, it's like PVC pipes where you could just shoot a burrito and it's going to run next to the sewer line or something like that. Like how, what are the hurdles to getting that to work? Uh, I mean, the biggest hurdle is like, like letting people, agreeing to have people lay the pipe, right, for, for your use. Uh, I mean, it's very analogous to, to kind of what Elon is doing with the boring company. And, and yeah, my, my thought on why did Elon do the boring company is is actually a hedge on Tesla's never becoming fully autonomous mm, uh, because right. you know if you have your own tunnel, you know it's kind of like a train, right? Like you you actually can have the autonomous operation inside that tunnel, uh, and and so I think that's where you know if if Pipe Dream can get the pipes, you know the technical feasibility of like the robot that goes through the pipes, yeah, that's that's kind of I mean I don't want to say trivial, but that's that, that's just yeah, there's enough engineering that gets that solved uh, in, in a fast enough timeline. Now, can can you get folks uh, to lay the pipe? I mean, I, I think there's interesting kind of a twist on where Pipe Dream could go, and they've talked about this, uh, is imagine in a curbside pickup scenario, just having a pipe go from 
the store, you know, a, a restaurant, like, you know, a Starbucks out into the parking lot. And so nobody has to bring you, you know, that, that, that kind of store staff doesn't have to bring you, you know, the order to your car. It's just kind of waiting for you in, in that parking lot, right? And there you just have to lay pipe, you know, from the inside of the store out into the parking garage, you know, so like, you know, 20, 30 feet of pipe. Uh, so, so I think for, for Pipe Dream, it's going to be interesting if in completely new cities, you know, new neighborhoods, can they kind of have their pipe kind of go in by default. I think the big challenge is in existing environments, like, is anybody going to let them tear up the streets to like put down a pipe so people can get stuff delivered? And, you know, w what does that timeline look like? But if they can pull that off, they're avoiding kind of a lot of the other challenges that the sidewalk robots and drones will have. Fascinating. I mean, definitely keeping an eye on those guys. Um, some interesting stuff happening with them. As we kind of near the end of the conversation, I'd love for you to talk just where you see the general food delivery landscape heading um, as labor costs continue to go up, as food costs continue to go up. As an example, something I just saw on Twitter this week was the founder um, of... Intercom sharing a receipt, and this happens all the time. I see these receipts on Twitter all the time. It's like $37 worth of food for $74 uh, because you have just boatloads of fees plus obviously the tip. But, you know, it just does not look good as far as the way things are trending. So where do you see, the, you know, vertical integration, robotics, AI, and, you know, all these different levers that we potentially have playing a role in making this work for groceries and or food delivery. Yeah, I mean, and I hope I'm proven wrong about this, but this isn't a Rubik's Cube with like a lot of different solutions. Uh, at the end of the day, it's an efficiency challenge, right? And in any world where you have a driver with like one or two orders delivering those, uh, that's going to be expensive, right? So, so you know, the, the kind of, trade-off is going to be, do you really need to put in your DoorDash order 30 minutes before you want the food? Or, you know, would you rather like put it in in the morning or the day before? You can still pick whatever food you want, uh, but you pick a delivery window the next day. And that way, you know, the, 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 there can be, you know, you know that, that DoorDash driver can have, you know, 10 meals loaded in and their kind of, you know, drop rate per hour goes up, right? So, so bashing together, uh, orders like it sounds simple and it, it sounds like almost stupidly simple, but like that that's going to be how we get costs down. And and I think where there's a room for innovation is how do you make people feel like the you know placing your order in the morning or the day before is as magical as like you know thirty minutes from now? Because like, do you really like is is our our tastes and preferences so fickle that like you you only want to know what's going to be for dinner you know 30 minutes before you're eating it right and how much are you willing to pay for that pre premium i mean you you had on a previous podcast the uh, uh baris uh from from jingle and this was you know i i really like parts of how he talks about this i mean to me it's kind of one way of framing it is can you inverse fulfillment and and kind of the delivery, me me meaning that like somebody gets notified, so fulfillment and demand. So somebody gets notified that something is near them, uh, product is near them, and then they demand it versus first demanding something and then having it be fulfilled to you, right? And and so that, that's another way, again, of, of kind of creating batching efficiency. But, you know, it's kind of one of these, like pick two of the three, like either things come to you fast, uh, either you have a lot of variety or you're, you're kind of not paying through the roof and you can't have all three. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, we can have everything. We can have anything, but we cannot have everything, especially in this economy. So totally agree with you there. And uh, yeah, I think that the roving truck model is super interesting, pushing things towards the, towards the edge. Uh, you see this with uh, Schwann's. It's a frozen food company that's notifying customers when they're nearby. You know, it's essentially... You know the the ice cream truck model just taken. You take you take out the music and you put push notifications in. Maybe one day Amazon. You know Amazon's already pushing products to warehouses. You know I think proactively using their out you know AI to you know essentially predict that you're going to buy this razor blade 
and have it delivered to you same day, right? In those same day markets, you know, everything is just going to get pushed closer and closer to the customer and then to try to predict and then create that demand. Yeah. And I think as, as much as we want variety, you know, having to make a choice when you've got, have a hundred options, it's a burden on the consumer too. I mean, there's, there's a reason Costco is so successful uh, and it's not just the, the kind of value. It's, it's that like, you know, you're, you don't have to like go through this like mental gymnastics of like picking between 20 options. You know, they've got two or three at most. And, and I think kind of it becomes, you know, I mean, it's interesting. I'm sure you, you're familiar with this, but, but not, um, not all the audience. The first incarnation of Uber Eats was called Uber Fresh. And the model was you had three products that were preloaded in the, you know, hot products already in the car and the car would come to you and, you know, it wouldn't have to go to a restaurant, right? Because but you only had one of three options. Actually, interesting enough, one of the reasons that didn't work as well is people wanted more variety than three. So three, three isn't enough, but it would actually come too fast. So people were like, yeah, it would come in five minutes, like kind of like a ride hail would, and people like wouldn't be ready for it or like wouldn't be ready to go go down. Um, so I, I think there's room on the, you know, p- people, as long as it seems like the sweet spot for food delivery is like between 30 and 45 minutes, uh, but kind of getting stuff to you in 20 minutes versus 30 minutes, it doesn't seem like that's, you know, meaningfully uh, delivering a, a better consumer experience. I think the fear is like, the 45 minutes kind of creeping to 50, 55, and you just see kind of that estimated arrival time kind of increasing by the minute, every minute. And and that's kind of, that, that yeah, I, I think that's where the industry is kind of, uh, is not able to give people reassurance that there's no great solutions to it, right? I mean, you're, you're dealing with uh, human factors all the way around and, you know, things break and cities don't work perfectly. Yeah, you don't want it too fast, but you don't want it too slow. The, the consumer psychology behind this is fascinating. And um, uh, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to seeing a lot more startups try to uh, tackle this. Um, Dimitri, this has been an awesome conversation. Uh, everything we've covered, it's been a pleasure having you on board and really grateful for your perspective. Um, if people want to follow you, you know, what you're up to, you know, where can we, where can we uh, find your tweets or... How how can we follow you? Yeah, uh, at Dimitri140, and always happy to, to chat with folks. So email me at, at dshevel at gmail.com, D-S-H-E-V-E-L at gmail. Awesome. All right, well, thank you so much, and best of luck in whatever you do next. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. And if you're curious to get a firsthand look at the cutting edge of food and tech, check out Hungry.tv. That's Hungry with No You, where you can join in on live conversations like these or sign up for the free weekly newsletter. 